Good day. You're listening to Free City Radio. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal. Thanks for tuning in. This is the 172nd edition of the show, and it's great to be with you. I'm going to be sharing an interview and a conversation I had today surrounding the film Love in the Time of Fentanyl. This is a film that is focused on Vancouver's downtown east side, written up this way. An intimate, observational look beyond the stigma of people who use drugs, revealing the courage of those facing tragedy. Um, The film follows community organizers within a space um, in the downtown east side that is focused on harm reduction and is focused on looking at the crisis in the downtown east side, particularly around fentanyl, from an intersectional point of view, looking at structures and systems of violence and how that has affected people, uh, intergenerational poverty, colonization, and centering a narrative based on how community organizers are addressing and grappling with this crisis on the ground. It's a very powerful film. I first encountered it in my work with the Cinema Politica Network, and it was really great to get a chance to speak with both one of the protagonists in the film, who is Trey Helton, and is a frontline community worker, and also the film's director, Colin Askey, uh, who is based in New York but lived in Vancouver for many years. Here is our conversation about the film Love in the Time of Fentanyl. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Colin Askey, and I'm the director of Love in the Time of Fentanyl. And uh, I worked in uh, Vancouver's downtown east side for many years, and uh, it's a community that uh, means and meant uh, a lot to me. I moved to New York in, in 2016, right when fentanyl was kind of really just, you know, overdose death records records were going off the charts and it was kind of had taken over the drug supply at that point so we were you know hearing about lots of friends that and people that we'd known and loved that were passing away and and uh also hearing the struggles of of friends that were working in the neighborhood and uh so i just uh wanted to uh you know shed a light on on what was going on and and not just the the tragedy of the situation but uh also the the resilience of the community and uh, um, the courage that was happening. Thanks so much, Colin. Um, and we'll get into some of the parts and aspects of the film. I, I'd like to speak to you a bit about the filmmaking and the music choices too. Uh, Trey, you're obviously deeply involved in this film project and the issues at hand. Could you introduce yourself in relation to this film and, and share a bit about the work that you do? Yeah, my name is uh, Trey Helton, and uh, I am currently the manager at Overdose Prevention Society. <clears throat> when this movie was filmed, or documentary was filmed, it was filmed about almost five years ago, a while ago. And uh, at that point, I was just a peer, or um, I think I might have been supervisor for some of it, but it was filmed over a period, little bits. <clears throat> And, um, yeah, the place where it was filmed is called Overdose Prevention Society, and it's a peer-run safe injection site. And I think that peer word is an icky word, but we'll just use it for now, I guess. Um, Peer means person with lived experience or 
basically a, an active uh, drug user, sometimes former drug users, but um, <clears throat> ops uh, provides safe employment for drug users. Uh, we pick them up out of the alleyway or off the street and they come in and we train them how to use naloxone, train them how to spot overdoses, train them how to run an oxygen tank, give them all that information and then pay a honorarium uh, or a stipend. That's the legal loophole. Got to find the loophole uh, so that they don't have to claim it on disability or income assistance. Um, it's not very much money. It's like 10 bucks an hour on the low end, but some of the other high end stuff is, uh, is 20 bucks an hour, but that's like getting more into city employee stuff. We do some contractual stuff for the city of Vancouver, but we're the only peer site in the downtown east side that still pays cash out daily uh, until we get robbed. I don't think that's going to change, but uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. Um, so uh, it's a safe hustle, right? As it's explained in the movie uh, by the former manager, Ronnie, that uh, it doesn't uh, create shame or trauma. It's, it's a way for someone to feel proud about the way that they earn money. I know like for myself personally, as a, as a former uh, entrenched drug user, I, I did have morals growing up and I was, I was taught right from wrong. I didn't I don't like stealing or doing horrible things to get, money for drugs but i ended up doing those things out of desperation i never had a place like ops when i was using where i could earn money in a safe way uh i would always turn to criminal activity and then at the end of the day um not only was i using drugs uh because i was physically addicted but i was using drugs to cover up the shame and guilt associated with the things that i did to get the drugs mm -hmm. And it was an endless cycle of of uh, shame, trauma, and sadness. And um, you know, it's 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 a horrible situation right now in the downtown east side. And um, but uh, you know, there are some places that are that meet people where they're at. So uh, that's ops. It's very 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 low barrier. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's uh, that's a little bit of what I'm about and where where I work and. So the film traces uh, ops um, and the process around that uh, from the characters who are part of it, but also the, the physical space. A lot of the film is actually located within the community space, which I found to be a very meaningful choice. You see the locale, you see the situations as they unfold, whether they're meetings or um, crisis moments that are, are taking place just beside ops uh, in the downtown east side. Um, so you really get a sense of the neighborhood in that context. Um, that sense of the neighborhood contrasts very heavily from what most people associate with Vancouver. And some people who are listening to this will not be familiar with the downtown east side and sort of the ways that communities are, are dealing with these intersecting crises. Uh, this film has gotten quite wide reach um, in the United States, for example. Um, so, Colin, can you talk a bit about what you're trying to like do in collaborating with community organizers in this film, but also trying to tell this story in a way that could reach a lot of people? Um, why was that important for you? And, and, and also, what was your thinking in terms of how that would be a way to support 
the organizing work that we see in the film? Yeah, that's a, a great question. I think like for me, um, it was originally like a very just emotional response of like do something. And, and like, I think, you know, as we see in the film, there's just so much grief and, and, you know, trauma going on in the neighborhood. And I was working on a few different projects um, at the time just to try and capture all of the responses that were going on. Um, and to me, it really like, you know, is what the downtown East side is about. It's, it's a community that has, there's lots of strong opinions about it. You know, there's lots of obviously challenges and poverty and stuff, but for those of us that have had, you know, the honor to be a part of it, there's really just so much amazing stuff and amazing history and really groundbreaking, you know, evidence-based uh, responses to, to these issues, not just, you know, uh, drug use, but, but poverty and, and uh, housing and, and, and mental health and all of these things are really uh, so many beautiful examples of, of grassroots activism, which over the years of, of me working there, I really, you know, had the honor of, of hearing lots of that history and those stories um, through different film work um, in the community. And that really uh, helped for me to be able to have the, this access because there's a lot, lot of, uh, you know, relationships and trust that I, that I built in the neighborhood um, over the years. And, and for me, so as I was coming back in the neighborhood, as, as the crisis was uh, taking its toll, I was just kind of capturing stuff. And with ops, to me, it really represented the community as a whole. And uh, I, you know, I'd known Sarah for a while and Norma for a while. I'd, I'd never met Trey before, but knew a lot of the people that were working there. Um, and so I, there was the, the opportunity for that access and to really capture uh, something that I, I think most people don't get to see. And, and for those of us that have worked in, in harm reduction, you know, it's, it's not, for me, my opinion is, is what burns you out isn't the work and, and the people, it's the lack of understanding and, and the constant just like criticism of it. And so for me, it was always like, number one was, was just being able to capture what I had always been able to see in these spaces. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of opinions about people who use drugs as, um, you know, these, you know, weak or, or bad or evil, you know, whatever. And, and that's definitely, as we see in the film, uh, not the case. It's a, individuals that all have numerous different challenges and all have numerous different paths but are really just going above and beyond to help each other out. And it's a, the, the downtown east side community, I think, is filled with lots of folks that have been, you know, abandoned and rejected from different aspects of our society. And then they found in this community a place uh, where, where they're not judged. And, uh, and I think that gets missed when people say, look at the, all these issues of this neighborhood and, and people come there for the drugs and people come there for this and stuff like that. And really, I think it's uh, a part that gets missed is people come there because they're accepted and, and there's so much space there where people can feel welcome and space is uh, a very rare thing when you're a person who uses drugs. You're kicked out of just about anywhere. You're not allowed to have jobs. You're not allowed to really have much um, in, in society. So that, that's the beauty of, of, you know, ops and the community as a whole for me. And originally I, you know, I didn't have a plan other than that was the word actually in my mind starting to film in, in this tell the story was, was space. And uh, 
I kind of had some like Frederick Wiseman movies in mind and, and really wasn't um, thinking about, you know, character arcs and, and, and uh, telling, you know, a, a normal narrative story. It was more just to like put down the camera and, and, and hopefully, and or knowing from experience, magic would happen inside that. And hopefully that would change perspectives. And I was kind of trying to play with that a bit of just about like, pushing people past their comfort zones and also, but acknowledging that, that we're still an audience that, that really um, has a lot of opinions, but don't really, aren't re really a part of this. Um, and, and yeah, I, and I did, I definitely did not think it would have the reach that it did. And it was like me just, you know, mostly by myself, I had a lot of help from a friend who also had worked in the neighborhood that picked up some, some scenes as well, but um, mostly it was like me and then like, you know, people at Ops, Trey, I think, held a boom for a bit. You know, there's lots of lots of us in there that were making it making it work. And I didn't know what would happen, but luckily uh, some some grants and funding came into place. And that's been amazing is like, and, and like it's scary at first of like, okay, this is actually going to be seen, especially in the US where it's so controversial and people really, you know, this is maybe not the first window into it because a lot of my work trying to do education and awareness around harm reduction is kind of like baby steps in introducing people that don't know what this is, you know, because there's so many steps that people have to wrap their heads around. And this film really is like throws you right in there to, to what it's like. And so I had a lot of worry that it would be misinterpreted and, and, and people wouldn't have the context because it doesn't provide a lot of information, you know, in the documentary. It's really just kind of like following this crew around. And I was really just blown away by the response of how I think there's just so much grief, especially in the U.S., 100,000 people a year are dying here. And it's just like I think people are sick of, of uh, the same old, same old and really saw in this uh, a solution and, and something better. So that's been that's been amazing to see. Thanks for sharing those reflections, uh, Colin. There's one term that you used um, in what you just shared, which was uh, evidence-based um, responses. And I think that that is a pretty important um, term, a pretty important like uh, key um, point from which we can understand a lot of the work that's um, taking place in the film. Um, and I think despite like maybe some rhetorical changes that have happened in terms of state policy vis-a-vis um, drug users or understanding like drugs um, as, you know, beyond the sort of criminalization framework, there's some rhetorical changes that have happened in recent years, but we haven't seen a lot of like structural policy changes um, that, that are wide, um, uh, in terms of impact, um, obviously in the United States, but also in Canada. So Trey, um, this term like evidence-based approaches, um, like that is also about like experience-based approaches in terms of addressing this crisis. Um, and so like, can you talk a bit about like, maybe like your work and how it's shaped by both evidence-based approach, but also experience-based approach. And um, like, what, what have you been up to lately? Like we're in May, 2023. Um, so it's spring. 
um, like how's, how are things going in relation to trying to sustain and, and, and also sustaining this work of like experience-based community organizing essentially? Well, I mean, a lot of things have changed, but um, the reality of it is, and this is really depressing, is a lot of people are dead. Uh, a lot of people are missing. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I went to a funeral on, uh, went to a funeral on Tuesday last week for two people at once. Two brothers at once. Um, one, one of them uh, was an entrenched uh, drug user and a graffiti artist. A friend of mine named Dallas Ranville, and uh, he went by the graph name Emmer, E-M-E-R, short for emergency. Uh, he died of fentanyl poisoning on April 2nd. And uh, as me and his brother, Houston, were connecting um, and making plans for his funeral and making plans for Smokey to do a memorial piece for Dallas. Uh, Houston got in a fight with his girlfriend and went out to, um, you know, drink and take the edge off, ended up uh, doing some stuff that he didn't normally do. And he died on April 19th and um, to save money, his, their moms had a double funeral on May the 2nd. So it was a double open casket funeral for two of my friends. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there needs to be more done. Like, Ops is uh, ops is a good thing for like low barrier care and allowing, you know, a community space for for people to come and hang out. But there there needs to be more done. I mean, eleven thousand people dead just in BC alone from the overdose crisis is in the past seven years is is not okay. I mean, you shouldn't using drugs to deal with trauma and, you know, or even just having uh, taken a bit of pressure off shouldn't, shouldn't be a death sentence. Like that's just, it's just messed up. And, um, you know, like I found a dead body on Friday morning, two weeks ago too. Um, I don't know. I'm just pretty sick of it to be totally honest. But, uh, I don't mean to be such a Debbie Downer about it, but government needs to do more, man. There's a lot, there's a lot more they could be doing. There's, and it's like, you know, I give solutions all day long to these people, uh, these people higher up who have the ability to make changes. And it's just like, they don't do anything, man. And that's like what Sarah I think she even references that in, in love in the time of fentanyl is just like these, these people, the people that are the loved ones that are left, the family members that are left of these people that have died, just, just desperately want someone in power to just listen to them and just say, Hey, just here's some basic solutions, some things that you could do, like, just do this. 
and nobody does it. Like, what's what's the city prior? The Vancouver city of Vancouver's priority right now is spending a bunch of money to fix the cobblestones in Gastown. I'm not trying to just complain about stuff, but like, there's there's some solutions that that could be done from like a from like a street level that I see, like easier access to detox facilities, like when someone. Someone comes to me at ops, a, a participant, you know, like that, that's been using for a long time. And, you know, like I, I just I won't name the person, but I just had one uh, where, you know, over the past four years, this particular person is just um, getting worse and worse and worse. So they're now a hunchback. They used to stand up straight. They're a hunchy now. Uh, they lost all their teeth. They just were violently assaulted with a hockey stick slashed the back of their head slashed open and uh they had a moment of clarity where they were like i want to get out of this and i was like yeah it's not going to get better like you think it's bad now it's going to get worse dude like i I see it like you you should think about taking a break like detox let's call the detox number so he calls the detox number and it's a two-week wait two weeks goes by he doesn't care He's still going. He's he's that moment, that window, that tiny little window where he was like, I want to make a change is gone. You know what I mean? There should be more uh more low barrier, like instant access to detox someone, like if somebody wants it. There's other things that they could do, like have uh uh more like most of the detox centers are moving away from uh smoking. They don't want smoking in the lower mainland in health facilities. Well, it's like Come on, man. Like the guys coming in there to quit, try and quit fentanyl or crystal meth. Let them smoke cigarettes. <laughs> like, come on, man. Uh, there's some other things that they could do is like be more open minded to uh, cannabis. Uh, um, there is like on site is kind of open. On site uh, detox center is open to cannabis and edibles for people that are coming off opiates. They don't advertise it. But some of the other health authority detox centers could get on board with that. I know for me, when I kicked um, kicked heroin and crystal meth, cannabis was was a godsend, man. You know, I eat eat an edible and I was fucking so high on the couch. There's no way I was going to go get up and go get dope. Um, it helped me with the physical withdrawal from heroin. So that's another basic solution that could be done. I mean... The sad part is, is like if, if somebody wants detox access and they want it now, I have to tell them how to manipulate the system. I go, you want instant detox access? Well, uh, there's no such thing as that. If you want it, you're going to have to go to the emergency department, lie to them, say that you're suicidal, use key language, say, I have a plan, make up some bullshit, stick to it. I was going to go to the Lionsgate Bridge and jump off. Tell them you gave all your shit away. Um, you've been feeling this way for a while. You're going to get locked down under the Mental Health Act, put on a mental health unit, either in VGH or St. Paul's. From there, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to talk to a nurse or a medical professional, a doctor, and say, hey, you know what? I was feeling suicidal, but I think it's part of the drugs that are making me feel this way. Could I have a transfer to a detox facility? Um, and if you get a good health professional, this is where you're playing the gambit because some of these health professionals are burnt out and they'll be like, you just wasted my time get the hell out of here. Instead of actually listening to the person and saying, Hey, 
I can do that for you. I can get you an immediate trans transfer to a detox facility. Uh, you know, it's a 50-50 shot at that point. But like, why, why are, why are we at a point where I should be, you know, teaching people how to manipulate the healthcare system to get basic care that they need? Like, it's pretty twisted. Yeah, I think it's often hard for people to also connect these very, you know, whether it's a neighborhood specific issue or if we're talking about like uh, even altering the ways that the health system or the criminal justice system engages with issues of addiction um, and issues of um, basically like trying to overcome these decades of and even centuries of drug criminalization. Um, there's obviously a lot of intersecting issues here uh, related to colonization, to poverty. In the context of Vancouver, there's like a lot of layers that relate to the fact the city is is increasingly economically violent, you know, for a lot of low income working class people, uh, particularly indigenous people. There's all these sort of ways that these major issues that face society on a broad level in many cities are sort of um, have a focus point in the in the downtown east side and that relates to drugs but it also relates to these broader issues the film like really is pretty a focused work love in the time of fentanyl but you can see um the ways that these broader issues are highlighted a bit in some of the work that people are doing so just to finish up um we don't have that much time but colin if you could talk a bit about why seeing this film in sort of a broader social political context is important. I really appreciate that. And, and it's one thing uh, um, that I've hoped, you know, comes across because for me, really, the the film isn't about addiction or, or fentanyl even and really. And it's just kind of for me, me a mirror of a lot of our failures and uh, in all of those different ways. And uh, but despite that, a community has has rallied despite all those challenges and and so it's it's um th there is hope in that um you know listening to trey it's it's i don't want to take away from the constant suffering that is ongoing in this and like you know hearing trey over seven years and all the all of the friends down there it's just it's unimaginable the week to week oh here's another buddy that's that's gone and stuff and and screaming at the top of their lungs here's a way that we could fix this. And it's really, I think, us as a society that's holding those those issues back. And it's our comfort levels. And and through, as you said, like a historical years and years of misinformation and, and all this brutalizing uh, ways to target different groups that the war on drugs and prohibition um, stems from that I think we as a society are so misinformed and so uneducated around this and so we see this this fentanyl or this drug or this pharmaceutical company as these villains and and instead of looking at ourselves and I think that um, the more we can educate ourselves uh, learn the a, the history of, of all these issues and and be the evidence that's out there because safe supply isn't new it's been working for many years and in Canada, even it's been around, but has only been able to, uh, you know, have in these small scale kind of studies and, and more and more 
um, is happening, but it's never enough. And uh, and people hear this and they go, "Oh my God!" But it, but it's it's working is the thing, and it's like the same as as syringe exchanges, the same as overdose prevention centers. Safe supply is just keeping people alive, you know. But for real change and for us to, to, to get out of this crisis, I think we need a lot of looking at ourselves and looking at these deeper issues and, and, and you know, the structural violence and, and exclusion that's going on that, uh, you know, works for some people but fails a lot of people and, and you know, in my opinion, is, is killing people. Um, so, so, yeah, I think... Uh, and, and, you know, for people that aren't or don't care, you know, it's it's it saves money, you know, <laughs> for people that are, are, are like, no matter how you look at it, there's all these things is like, here's the years and years of evidence, whether you're okay, your comfort level's not there. Like it, it saves money. It just makes sense, all this stuff. But, but why it doesn't happen is really, really tragic. Uh, you've both pointed at so many issues um, that are visited in this important film tray, which you're in and Colin, which you worked very hard on, on, on making happen. As a filmmaker, uh, love in the time of fentanyl. So I'd encourage people to check out the film. Thank you both so much for your time today. Yeah, no problem, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. That was a conversation with filmmaker Colin Askey, director of the important documentary film, Love in the Time of Fentanyl, that you just heard all about. And one of the film's protagonists, Trey Helton, who is speaking from Frontline Organizing Experience in Vancouver's downtown east side. This has been another edition of Free City Radio. We air weekly on a number of stations across Canada. You can find our archives at soundcloud.com slash freecityradio. And we are also podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Look us up and spread the word. Really would appreciate it. I'm Stefan Christoph in Montreal, and I'll speak to you next week. 